0: We need a gang, you know, like we need to roll deep. And I don't know if people still use that turn of phrase, do they? young? I, I think I think they still use it, yeah. The United States needs to roll deep on this one because we are facing a behemoth that's much bigger than us. In terms of China's power, right, the power that this size generates, it will be unparalleled. It will be a more powerful country than the United States, even if it's a poorer and more dysfunctional country. If you took four Soviet unions and piled them on top of each other, that would have overpowered the United States. We need a lot of countries on our side, and everyone knows that this means Japan, Europe, India, and the countries of Southeast Asia. Those are our key allies. So we have to switch from this idea that we are the guarantor and benefactor, et cetera, which was sort of true during Cold War. We could outmatch the Soviet Union just by ourselves. We have to switch from that. We're not even the biggest country in the world anymore, really, in terms of like power, it's China.
1: Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of
0: economics. Let's jump right in.
1: Noah, welcome to uh, episode three. Excited to do this.
0: Hey, man. I have a question. Do yes. you think we should like, do a thing where we banter for like a minute like some podcasts do?
1: I think so. <laughs> Is this right. a meta banter?
0: <laughs> we should absolutely meta banter.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, um i'm happy with how things are going at the moment <laughs> are you happy
0: i'm pretty happy uh i think that the the listeners should know an interesting fact which is that i ta'd your undergrad class <laughs>
1: yes and <that laughs> yes we, and we, we just talked. figured this out uh, a few recently when i was telling you I went to university of michigan and you were like oh i was there too and i was like oh wait <laughs> um yeah uh who knew that uh you know 12 right. years later we'd be uh we'd be collaborating in this capacity
0: but cool. for the for the audience, I did not uh, actually teach Eric's classes. I did not actually lecture. I simply graded his papers uh, in the background.
1: <laughs> yes, and I'll I'll leave it to the listener to let them speculate as to whether I'm pleased or uh, or unhappy with with Noah's grading. But uh, well, I believe
0: you got a good grade in that class. <laughs>
1: <yes>. <laughs> I, I think yes. I think you did just fine. So yes, yeah, things turned out okay. Um, yeah, it's a good good economics program um and ann-, ann arbor is just so great i i haven't been in a minute
0: but i i, I love that city yeah it's it, they're they're really growing it which is making me very happy yeah like they finally got a uh, sort of yimbified.
1: yeah totally cool so l- l- let's get to it today we're going to talk about the the state of the chinese economy You've written a few pieces about this. You, you touched on it different ways. You wrote about the, the real estate situation, we, which we alluded to in a previous episode. You wrote about sort of the EV situation. You wrote about, um, you know you did this great interview with Dan Wang. So we're, getting, we're and you've written other pieces as well. So we'll touch on a number of those. But why don't you give us, to start, just an overview of the, of the state of the Chinese economy where um, things are going well, where things are not going well, what's underappreciated or, or underestimated in terms of challenges?
0: Right. So I think, um, you know, the most important thing is that we have these overall big perceptions of the Chinese economy that change very slowly. And I think that, you know, in the 2000s, basically China was a cheap manufacturing base for Western companies. And that perception of the Chinese economy stayed with us for about at least 10 years after it was no longer a good description of what China was actually doing. I think then finally, you know, in the pandemic, we woke up to the fact that China. Had become a high tech player, you know, uh, a direct competitor in many ways. And in fact, people, you know, panicked like China's is ascendant in the United States is declining, China's defeating us, and all these sort of combative metaphors, right? And, um, and that went along with greater geopolitical tensions that were happening at the time. But I think that um, that narrative um, really, uh, you know, took over. And I think that then that narrative started to be corrected. Um, when, uh, because of zero COVID. So China did this policy that was very sort of dramatic and flamboyant. And they came out and said, this is why we're better than the West. Cause we can do this and the West. Can't look at what we can do. And the policy just failed. Uh, ultimately they could not contain COVID. Um, and they hurt their economy in the process. And it was, the policy was rescinded leading to an absolute, you know, big spike in COVID and a lot of people died, et cetera. And so I think that at that point people started to say, "Hmm, maybe China is not the all-conquering colossus we thought." Uh, but I, I think that some people's expectations are, are still getting, are still in the process of getting reset. And um, and China has this big and persistent slowdown that has nothing to do with zero COVID. Zero COVID is long gone, and now China has this this slowdown that that continues to persist. We're seeing all kinds of negative Chinese economic data that are unrelated to anything that happened in 2022.
1: So say more about that. What, what, what what are we seeing
0: and why is there a slowdown? What, what, what explains what's right. happening? So there, there's a number of reasons we're seeing a slowdown. One is because, well, China's economy has been slowing down for quite a while. So, you know, people tend to think of China, we, we got so used to China as this economy that grows at nine or 10% that, uh, which it did for, you know, 30 years or so, yeah, uh, that we we sort of, I. Thought that that's a constant of the universe that the ten percent growth is fixed in the firmament, but in uh, around 2012, right around the time Xi Jinping came to power, although I'm not sure he caused it, but right around the time Xi Jinping came to power, um, China's growth started to slow, and every year you'd see a lower number. You'd see like you know nine point six percent, nine point two, eight point five. You know, like you'd see a slower number each year, and by the end of the decade, it had reached about six. 6% down from 10%. Now 6% is still a lot faster than America grows or Europe or Japan or these developed countries, but 6% was significantly slower than it had been. And now coming out, uh, you know, things have been distorted because you had zero COVID. You had the bounce back from that. You had this giant spike in sort of retail sales as people rushed out to shop the really big story and so so the 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 overall big story is that china has been slowing 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 and that the pandemic sort of distorted this for a couple of years and that now we're starting to see this overall pattern reassert itself uh china is not the growth juggernaut it once was and um and for you know and so that's part of the story but another part of the story is the the collapse of the chinese real estate industry hmm. and i what i think people don't understand you know When we in the West hear about China's economy, we're always hearing about export manufacturing, China making electronics, China making cars, right? We're always hearing about those things like, oh, China can make this, China can make that. But if you look at what actually comprises the Chinese economy, a much bigger piece of the Chinese economy is actually just real estate. That It's really a real estate dominant economy in a way that even at the height of our housing bubble, we never were. And that's, you know, it's, it's on a scale that Americans just do not comprehend. Why is that the case? Well, uh, I mean, um, so, so why is that the case is an interesting historical sort of, uh, you know, question. And, you know, one of the answers is that China doesn't really have a lot of mechanisms, mechanisms in place for government consumption. So in the United States, the government will buy you a bunch of health care and, you know, a little bit of housing and some other things, but mostly health care. China doesn't have that instead when money gets spent domestically it gets spent on real estate and so there's a number of other reasons too china does not have property tax and that's the thing that people just do not know about china we think oh yeah local governments are funded by property tax that's just how it works because that's what we do right and so as a result the local governments have to fund everything from everything from like sewers or electricity whatever they're doing they have to fund it all by selling off land hmm. and the, of course you know China 's nominally communist and it used to be actually communist, and at that time the government owned all the land and so now basically it 's land privatization that funds the all like Chinese government below the federal level or or at the local level let's say got it uh, it 's just privatization revenue you know they sell off land, they sell off more land, and so what that means is that there 's this continuous land sale for development that drives much of the Chinese economy. And so that's another reason. A third reason is that when China experienced economic shocks, like the Great Recession threatened to derail Chinese growth, or later a stock bubble burst and some capital outflows in 2015 threatened to derail China's growth, they always had the exact same response, which was tell banks, which are all owned or controlled by the state, tell the banks to lend a bunch of money. So where do they go lend a bunch of money to real estate? You know, they don't lend money to like some fancy manufacturer because banks don't understand that stuff, right? Banks don't understand like semiconductor manufacturing or car manufacturing. What they understand is real estate. And so they lent money to a bunch of property developers, <laughs> mainly property developers and to local governments, you know, but it was all driven by property, all these, all these loans. So because China kept using this as stimulus, you know, using this as economic stabilization, they got super, super dependent on real estate over time. And it just kept growing, growing until it was about 29% of the economy, um, which is, you know, much that's much more than even at the height of our housing bubble as a percent of China's economy. And so, um, and this, this was, Oh, another, one more reason was that export growth sort of stalled after the, uh, the great recession because the rich economies couldn't keep buying ever increasing amount of Chinese stuff. And so the Chinese government said, okay, we need to switch to sort of domestic demand, but since they didn't have much consumption stuff in place, they switched to investment demand, which is basically real estate, real estate development and infrastructure, which of course, is heavily tied in with real estate because you have have to have land to build all the right. infrastructure.
1: Got it. So, so you mentioned twenty nine percent of the economy is real estate. So it's you're basically what you're saying is there, there's a, there's a big vulnerability. Like flush this out. Like what needs to happen for this bubble to burst? Or like you know what are the
0: concerns here? Right. So I you know I I talked to some some people who live in China and you know study the Chinese economy for a living, and they all pointed me to the same piece of data, which was that China would soon have as much living residential floor space per person as a rich country. Maybe not as the United States or Australia who have these really big houses, but, you know, as much as, say, Germany. And at that point, at that point, anything, any land purchases of residential land beyond that are speculation. And so you saw these forests of apartment towers going up and you saw people buying these apartment towers because China doesn't really have a stock market and they didn't, you know, know where else to put their stuff and government bonds have crappy yields. So you saw everyone in China putting all their money into second apartments. Right. Or or just first apartments, you know, for their for the kids, grandkids. And they were just they didn't take out a lot of debt, but they paid ridiculous amounts of money. You see that, you know, the the Chinese people earn like a quarter of what Americans earn, but then you see them paying prices higher than Americans pay for condos to buy these condos all over China. You see these when you look at real estate in China, it's these giant forests of apartment towers, these green and white, usually green and white forests of apartment of of, of towers, those are condos that you know, China has a home ownership rate of something like ninety percent. Those are all condos. Right. And people are buying condos in these gigantic buildings and they're paying. And you have uh, because China had one child policy and low fertility rate. You had, you know, uh, four grandparents and two parents all pooling their money to buy one apartment for one son, basically, or, or you know, maybe the maybe the, the daughter's husband. Right. They, they would buy that, that was the pattern, right? You would have this generational wealth buying these condos for insanely high prices. But once everybody has a condo, then everybody's just buying these empty condos. And so what you started to see was all these empty condos going up all around China, which, you know, the, the, the proceeds from those, the sales of those empty condos financed local governments, financed public services, financed whatever, and also led to a bunch of debt that gave the banks all their profits, blah, blah, blah. But then no one was living in these condos. Mm-hmm. no one was in these places they were empty it was pure speculation is that a bubble yes it is right. so it's basically a giant bubble
1: <laughs> so okay so kind of summarizing here um you know china was growing at you know nine ten percent for 30 years um and it started to slow down just kind of naturally maybe for you know um kind of the you know low-hanging fruit or ketchup growth had ended or you know this kind of a natural momentum to it and then uh combined with uh certain policies around um, zero COVID, but even separate from it um, is why we've seen slow down. And then what you're also saying is that there's this great vulnerability uh, in the Chinese economy via the real estate situation being almost one third of the one third of the economy and, you know, large often being used for speculation.
0: Right. And so people like Michael Pettis would say for years or George Magnus, they would say for years, A big real estate crash is coming. A big real estate crash is coming. And then it wouldn't happen. And then all the, the sort of China boosters, you know, would say like, ha, 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 where's your real estate crash now? Ha, 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 ha. And the real estate sector just kept getting bigger and the debts associated with it just kept piling up. And, you know, just more and more and more real estate just kept happening. And finally it crashed in 2021. Uh, you had the property developer Evergrande was the Lehman Brothers of China. It was right. the first default because they had been the most overzealous about building these useless empty condos. And um, But then essentially every, property, every big property developer in China is going to either default or have like very serious trouble. Um, it's yeah. a system-wide thing. And so from that day on, China's economy stopped being about expanding real estate more and more and more and started being more about distributing the harms from the real estate crash that is now underway.
1: Distributing the harms. What does that mean? Where do we go from here? If, if what you're saying comes to pass, how, how bad is this for the Chinese economy?
0: Well, well, really bad because, so, uh, you know, in terms of uh, a growth, you know, that's going to rob them of one of their big growth drivers, right? Like right. Uh, real estate, you have 30% of the Chinese economy, or almost, then that's just a huge growth driver, huge employment driver. People would work for a developer or a real estate finance thing or a local government financing vehicle or a bank or a construction company or blah, 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 blah. Now, None of those people are hiring. And so you've seen youth unemployment in China go to 20%. And a lot of that is construction. And a lot of that, and and some of that piece is finance. Uh, Or just, you know, white collar office jobs working in a developer, which are these giant paper pushing bureaucracies employing, you know, millions upon untold millions of regular people. Youth unemployment, 20%.
1: Hey there, Eric here. We're looking for sponsors to partner with us on our show. If you or your business might be interested, send us a note at eric at turpentine.co or through our website. That's eric at turpentine.co. So what do you predict ha- happens in the next few years? To, to is, is that GDP goes down significantly? Are we seeing, you know, four to 5% or you know, even less? Like, how,
0: how do we think about this? Right. So right now, you know, some of that real estate slowdown, there, there's this giant investment slowdown, and some of that is being masked by the bounce back in retail sales from zero COVID. And one thing people need to understand about China when they read all these numbers, right, is that China releases statistics in a year-on-year format, which means that they're comparing to last year instead of comparing to last month. And what that means is that you're going to see some very good numbers for retail sales because it's all comparing to zero COVID. Zero COVID was dropped at the end of the year. So by the end of 2023, you're going to stop seeing the giant bounce back in China's retail numbers because you won't. Not see a giant shopping boom anymore, Um, and so by the so this year you're going to see growth of five percent or something nice looking because it's all annualized, it's all it's all a year over year, it's all um, the bounce back from zero COVID, which is masking a lot of this stuff. But 2024 will be the first year where we get to see truly a post COVID Chinese economy where the pandemic just doesn't matter at all in terms of Chinese statistics, and we get to see the real underlying stuff. And you're going to see a slowdown. I've seen projections of China's growth going to, you know, 2% over this decade, wow. that's probably too pessimistic. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a developed country rate. Um, but maybe, you know, you could see that, uh, I, I would say, more likely, given the typical size of growth slowdowns, I would say three and a half percent is what I would predict for China's growth, you know, in sort of the, the rest of this decade after pandemic stuff goes away. But that's, you know, these are very inaccurate predictions it could more and massage their numbers a bit like they've been known to like yeah sometimes fake but more often just sort of smooth it over yeah
1: and so what does that you know let's say that comes to pass exactly what you just said in terms of china's growth rate you know, slowing down materially what does that mean for their position in 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 the world um at, at large
0: well so i think uh you know growth rates are one thing but size is another china is a huge economy and by Almost all measures, except for you know GDP at market exchange rates, but in almost all measures, China is already bigger than the United States. They are bigger at purchasing power parity. They manufacture more. They export more. They um, they don't have quite as big a consumer market as the United States, but they produce more than we do. And they're just this giant economy. And we have to understand the reason is not because they're super efficient and advanced, and this is like this extra advanced civilization that will bury us. Blah blah blah. I mean, maybe it is, but the thing is that China's really big. It's four times the size of America. That's like the ratio of size between America and Germany. And to think that America could stay ahead of China in terms of economic size is like thinking that Germany could ever be ahead of America in the total size of its economy. And that's just not happening. Going
1: back to our first episode, we were talking about how Peter Zehan was so bearish on China, on, on their demographics and, you know, their oil situation or energy situation, food situation that he thought there was a number of ways in which they would implode. You you think that's highly unlikely? Um, I, I mean, like, what will demographic, China's
0: demographics look like in a decade? Well, the thing is that that when Zehan makes a prediction of implosion, those kind of implosions almost never happen. You did see it happen to the Soviet Union, but it was it's actually a pretty rare thing to happen. Like, almost no economy ever implodes like that maybe some very poor countries no rich country has ever so so it could happen but he's really going out on a limb to make that extreme prediction my prediction is different my prediction is a grinding long-term slowdown more similar to what we saw with japan although for caused by different things than what caused Japan's slowdown i, I can't really speak to the energy part of this and, and some of these commodity driven things that Zahan talks about i've seen the numbers but i'm not sure what they really imply here, but I I think that everyone agrees about the demographic situation here, which is that China is outright losing population and it's been losing working age population by several million per year for, you know, a decade, over a decade now, um, you know, and in terms of the young working population, like the the under 30 population, which are, you know, the hardest workers and, and drive a lot of stuff, um, you know, start new companies, blah, blah, blah. That number started just absolutely falling off a cliff many years ago. And if you look at it, the giant demographic cohort in China is the um, is the thirty to fifty cohort. Are people who are now middle aged? It has this huge middle aged bulge. Now that's still good because middle aged people are the best managers, typically. Mm-hmm. Well, younger people are the hardest workers. Middle aged people are the best managers. That giant demographic cohort is going to age out of being prime age managers, right? right? And then, and then when you see that, you see they all become old and in the in places that are not named the United States you know or maybe Australia I don't know um management is age based you've been at this company for a long time so you're in charge we're not just going to throw the old people out and bring some new people in that's very hard to do that in most countries and so what you're going to see 10 years from now 20 years from now is all the chinese companies will be run by 60 year olds hmm. And that is going to make it difficult to embrace whatever new technologies come along, whatever new market opportunities come along. It'll cause some ossification. What You're also going to see a giant increase in the number of retirees. And that is like Japan, right? You're going to see young people just have to work so much to support old people, either through elder care outside of work, because China doesn't have a great healthcare system yet, or if they get a healthcare system together, people will still have to pay all these giant taxes to support... Uh, You know, Japanese people pay high taxes because there's not many working people and they have to support all these old people. You know, they're not profligate. They're not, the government doesn't really waste a lot of money in Japan anymore. They used to, but they don't. And so, but they have all these old people to support and that's the problem. And China's going to have the exact same problem. America's going to have some version of this problem if we don't keep letting in more immigrants, but that's another story. And so, so Zehan is absolutely right about demographics. And I think everyone realizes that this isn't just an additional drag. This is on top of the real estate thing. You've got this. One of the most rapid cases of aging ever seen in a country that is not really yet a rich country,
1: right? So, so what does this imply for sort of the state of U.S.-China relations going forward? I mean, you mentioned China's, um, you know, forex the 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 size. I'm curious, like, what would need to be true for China to overtake the U.S. in terms of being a a a world power? um, And you know, what what is likely to to play out here?
0: Well, I don't know. So you take the Soviet Union, right? So Soviet Union was famously basket case economy. They never got more than half as rich as us, and usually they're more like a third as rich as us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a really badly run economy. I mean, you remember the the yeah. Cold War and all that stuff. But then the Soviet Union was approximately the same size as us in terms of people. It was slightly larger. It was about the same. And so imagine imagine a 4X Soviet Union. Imagine that instead of one Soviet Union, we're facing four. Yeah, wow. I would say Soviet Union's kind of a worst-case scenario for China's economy. So imagine that we were facing four countries at the same time that were slightly better economically than the Soviet Union was. Hmm. And that's that's a crappy scenario for Chinese living standards, because that means Chinese people will continue to be sort of, you know, middle income people rather than rich people on average. Right. I mean, you'll have some fabulously rich people in China, but your average Chinese person is not going to have the kind of living standard that you see in America or Canada, Australia. Right. Instead, you'll have a um, it'll, it'll be more like Thailand. Right. And so um, or maybe Mexico, it'll be like Chinese people will be about as rich as as Mexicans, that the country will be absolutely enormous. So in terms of China's power, right, the power that this size generates, it will be unparalleled. It will be a more powerful country than the United States, even if it's a poorer and more dysfunctional country, because if you took four Soviet unions and piled them on top of each other, that would have overpowered the United States.
1: And so what should the U.S. do about this? (laughs)
0: we need a gang you know (laughs) like we need to roll deep and i don't know if people still use that that turn of phrase do they i I think i think
1: they still use it yeah okay so the
0: united states needs to roll deep on this one because we are facing a behemoth that's much bigger than us so imagine imagine if imagine if germany wanted to like oppose the united states i guess at one point they did but uh, imagine that they wanted to now; they would have to get a giant gang on their side to do that. And so the same is true of us. We cannot oppose China alone. We are too small of a country. Now, as China's population shrinks, and if we can sustain immigration, then by the end of the century, it will be another story. We will be on a much more level playing field demographically with China by twenty one hundred if we keep immigration going and their population keeps decreasing. But that's a hundred years—that's like eighty years from now. Yeah. It's not a hundred years; it's eighty years from now. We'll be on a level playing field. So in the meantime, we need a gang. We need a lot of countries on our side. And everyone knows that this means, um, you know, Japan, Europe, India, and the countries of Southeast Asia. Those are our key allies. Um, And so we have to switch from this idea that we are the guarantor and benefactor, et cetera, which was sort of true during the Cold War. We could outmatch the Soviet Union just by ourselves. We have to switch from that, right? It's not unipolar anymore. We're not even the biggest uh, country in the world anymore, really, in terms of like power. It's China right? I mean, China doesn't throw its weight around in the international system yet, like we do uh, with international organizations, IMF, World Bank, UN, whatever. We have to stop thinking of ourselves as this dominant hyperpower and start thinking of ourselves as as the second most powerful country in the world.
1: Economically, I get that. You, militarily, would you say that?
0: Absolutely. Well, so so militarily is an interesting case because um, we have a, a more powerful military than China, I think. And I think that if our countries were to go to war with the mil- with just the militaries we have today in a three-week war we would beat china that's yeah. complicated by the fact that it might be a war over taiwan so it would be in china's backyard so it'd be harder for us to operate and uh you know they've got a lot of like missiles parked on land right around there so it would be it would be tough right but i think america would defeat china and i think that recent war games show america defeating china although at high cost in a short sharp conflict but now Think if that war, like the Ukraine war, lasts longer than the few weeks, right? Think about if we start using up all our shells and our missiles, and we have to start producing new shells and missiles and and planes and and drones and whatever. Who is going to win that production race? Well, it's obviously China. Um, they China's manufacturing capacity on paper, in terms of value added, is equivalent to that of America plus Europe combined, right? And so, but in reality, it's even it's even more lopsided because China is able to ramp up production rapidly and we are not what we have seen recently is that american you know uh regulations especially like procedural regulations like NEPA, but actually just a giant thicket of regulations makes it very hard to build new stuff and ramp up production in america you know and the the sort of the ukraine war has has kind of shown this because we're ukraine even though it's a small country and the war is much smaller than it would be of us against china ukraine is having is, is using more artillery shells than we can than we can furnish because it's so hard for us to ramp up defense production. Our defense industrial base is absolutely broken, right? And so imagine this against China. China, we just scale up and scale up. China can mobilize. If there's one thing they can do, they can mobilize the whole country really fast. They can do just harness massive resources to make simple stuff, right? Look at how fast they made masks in the COVID pandemic. They couldn't make an mRNA vaccine, but they could make hella masks and hella ventilators, right? And they could just like mass produce just like infinite oceans of masks and ventilators. Right. And so they they did that and they'll they'll similarly be able to produce infinite oceans of just like pretty, you know, decent level missiles and drones and planes and and ships and whatever just massively outproduce us. That's what we did in World War Two. We overwhelmed uh, Germany and and Japan with production. Much of that production we actually gave to the Soviet Union to to overwhelm Germany. But then we overwhelmed them with production and we just produced massive. We're not that country anymore. We can't, we don't have the institutional capacity to do that anymore. And we're trying to rebuild it. And it's very slow going. And there's a lot of vested interests in the way that are really blocking things on that front. So we're trying to rebuild, but China has no such problem. China can just manufacture infinite amounts of stuff. So we're in trouble. So if
1: you were in charge of, uh, you know, our 10 year plan, (laughs) as it relates to China, you would say hey we need to focus on alliances you know increase population size um we like what when you set out other what would your other tenets be of a of a plan for how to contain or deal with China?
0: like i said increasing population size depends on immigration and it's something for the next hundred years not the next 10 years in the next yep. 10 years we won't be able to close the demographic gap by any appreciable amount it's just too short of time um alliances absolutely that's the very first thing we need to be doing and to to biden's credit i think that he is doing this This was this was Trump's big problem is that he basically uh, shat all over our allies and, uh, you know, imposed tariffs on our allies and sort of started fights with them every week. And this was a really bad idea. Um, Biden has been much better and Biden is heavily courting India. Biden is strengthening organizations like the Quad or various other organizations that that um, in Asia, you know, in, in Europe against Russia, but especially like in Asia, we are strengthening our alliances and we're doing a good job and we, we're, we're creating all these new bases in the Philippines to oppose a Taiwanese, a, a Taiwan invasion. Um, and, uh, and we are even starting to create de facto alliances with countries like Vietnam, which is pretty impressive given that they're still officially a communist country. And so we are, we're, we're actually doing a decent job on this. We could do better than we're doing, but we're doing a decent job. Um, we need to use economic stuff like, you know, like TPP would have been, we need to use economic stuff to bind those countries all together, not just to us, but bind them to each other as well. So we create this, this, what people call an alt Asia block, a non China regional trading block, because Asia is the economic center of the world, we need to have a, a block that includes Indonesia and India and Vietnam and Japan, and South Korea and Taiwan, that does not include China. Uh, even if you know the United States is a bit separate from that block, you know we're standing over here uh, on the other side of the Pacific. So that's something we need to do in terms of defense production. We need to we need to be able to build stuff again. And I know a company which is called Hadrian. Uh, do you know Hadrian?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm an investor.
0: Hadrian is really working on fixing this defense production issue. And the defense production issue has a number of angles. Basically, there's a whole bunch of bottlenecks. Uh, the the sort of primes they call them. The the big defense contractors like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin control too much of the the manufacturing market. They're really too dominant. Also, we have all these burdensome regulations. So it's it's regulation, concentration, and bottlenecks, right? That are sort of the three uh, uh, problems that we have. And we just need we need you know equivalent reform to what we had during lend lease. We just reactivated the Lend-Lease Act, right? We need to treat it like that. We need to say, okay, we are now in an era where we have to become the arsenal of democracy again, and NEPA or whatever has to go out the window, and some of these regulations have to be suspended, or, you know, we, and we need a bigger bureaucracy to, like, overwhelm these regulations. So, So what's interesting is that we're going to need state capacity. We're going to need a bigger bureaucracy for all of this. And so it's not just a libertarian thing where you just slash regulations and get out of the way, because that's not how this works. You need yeah. a bureaucracy to say, to just overwhelm these bottlenecks, to just, you know, um, approve stuff really fast for all the environmental reviews. Um, you need a, a bureaucracy to help overwhelm bottlenecks, to, to you know, to counteract the influence of, of the lobby of the prime contractors. Yeah, You're going to need a civil service to counteract that. And so we need a bureaucracy. It's not just like a, it's not just like a pure libertarianism button that we press. Right. It's not that. But, you know, a lot of the progressive people who want to do industrial policy, like my friend Todd Tucker, really think that we can have what they call the everything bagel. They really think we can do all of this increased production while also preserving NEPA exactly as it is now hmm. and all these regulations exactly as they are now. And we can't. We can't. Everybody's going to have to give up something here. And hopefully, the urgency of the challenge. Will make us understand that our defense production is broken and that we need to increase that. But it's not just defense production either; it's production in general, it's power transmission, it's solar plants, it's battery factories, it's semiconductor factories, chip factories. You know, right? It's like it's everything we need to build. We're just starting to realize that we've become a build nothing country. The people who want to preserve those regulations, do they think that they're
1: serving some purpose? Like, why are they trying to do this?
0: Well, part of it is because they have an institute, they have a coalition, a political coalition, and that includes, you know, lawyers, right? And and lawyers, our current system of regulations is not bureaucratically administered so much as it's court administered. So in other words, you want to do a thing and some people who don't want you to do it sue you in court and it ties you up for years. That's how it works. Lawyers have a vested interest in keeping that system and lawyers are part of this political, not just a political coalition, but an intellectual coalition uh, along with a lot of the progressives. Uh, and it's very difficult to sort of say, okay, lawyers, sorry, we're throwing you under the bus because we need to make more, you know, missiles. Like, imagine a progressive saying, sorry, we need to make more missiles. So we're throwing our longtime coalition partner under the bus. It's just not a thing you yeah. do, right? right? And so that's that's very, very difficult. Um, hopefully, progressives can sort of, of pivot from wanting more lawsuits to wanting a larger bureaucracy, a larger civil service, because that's a, a thing progressives should want and might want. And so hopefully we can just have them switch a court-centric regulatory mechanism for a bureaucratic regulatory mechanism and that will satisfy progressives to some degree um even though it means that some lawyers will have to become proportionally less powerful within our system.
1: Now, now let's go back to China. If if you were in charge of a Chinese economic policy and you're you know seeing sort of the the troubles ahead What would you do to try to steal for it or try to, you know, what what should they be doing both in terms of internally, but then also, um, you know, externally uh, as it relates to, to foreign policy?
0: Well, they should do two things, one of which they're doing, one of which they're not doing. The thing that they're doing, which is correct, is to make a crap ton of cars and green energy, electric cars and green energy. You have a piece about this. It's great. China is really winning the EV race. They're adopting EVs faster, but they're also becoming Europe's main EV supplier and Southeast Asia and Latin America's main EV supplier. The whole world is shifting away from combustion cars, and China has a, this sort of golden opportunity to leapfrog all the old companies like you know GM and Ford and Toyota um, and, and Volkswagen, who all do these these you know ga- gasoline cars, right? They're they're very wedded to this, and China has the uh, uh, ability to disrupt this, and they're doing that. They're doing that. They're building as many cars as they can. Auto industry employs a ton of people. It's very capital intensive. It's, um, it's hugely high margin, right? Especially if you can build your own brands. And, um, you know, it's an export industry, build cars, build cars, build cars and also build solar power because China has all this coal energy. They're going to have to replace this with solar and wind. And they're doing that starting to do it. They're still building too much coal, but they're, they're really ramping up green energy. So this is smart. This is exactly what China should be doing. And it's what I would do if I were in power. The second thing, which they're not doing is healthcare. In America, the reason why everyone still has a job, even though, you know, we created machine tools to make everything much more efficiently, and then we outsourced a bunch of stuff, blah, blah, blah. The reason everyone still has a job is healthcare. Everyone works taking care of each other's problems, and this is why healthcare is a very unproductive industry, because that's where we dump all our labor. But it also means that people get, frankly, a lot of healthcare we talk about how expensive healthcare is in the united states and it is but also there's a lot of it if you look at the amount of services that people in america consume relative to other rich countries we consume a lot more anyway point being china needs a healthcare system a better healthcare system more healthcare will take that unemployment right you won't you won't put all those people to work in car factories or solar factories you need healthcare and so china just needs to absolutely like binge splurge massive resource mobilization on creating a healthcare system for the country.
1: Yeah. So, green energy which they are doing and healthcare which they're not doing. How about externally, how should they be playing uh, the foreign policy game?
0: Well, I don't know because, you know, my they they have their own objectives, right? I'd say, you know, don't invade Taiwan, but if they want, <laughs> like, don't do it, guys, stop. Is, is it inevitable? Like is, are we going to have Ukraine
1: Russia type situation in the next decade inevitably?
0: I don't know. I think there's a there's a there's a reasonable chance that we will. I would, you know, I, I could just make up a number and tell you that I think it's fifty fifty. But um I think that there's a reasonable chance we will and a reasonable chance that we won't, because it would be horribly costly and risky for China to do this. And I think there's a good chance they look at it and they say, you know what? Nah. <laughs> let's just let it go by another couple of decades and like let our economy, you know, like whatever, grow some more and like let whatever. Um, and they might say, let's just put this off because that's what they did during the Hu Jintao period. They put it off. They said, "Let's deal with this later. We're not going to like give up on this idea of re- of of conquering Taiwan, basically. But we're going to just put it off because that's not what we care about right now. And they might put it off again, you know. And that w- that would be smart. But you know, if they wa- if that's not what they want to do, it's not what they're going to do. If they feel this burning need to like you know invade and conquer Taiwan like right now, they're going to do it, right? Yeah. And what is the calculus there? Like,
1: what, what's what's the what's the prize of what Taiwan would would bring, such that it would make sense for them to take that?
0: Huge of a risk. So, I mean, the the obvious thing is just sort of nationalistic bragging rights. It's like, wow, we are as great as the Qing dynasty because China traditionally did not control Taiwan. China really only incorporated Taiwan into its empire during one dynasty. It was about two hundred fifty years. It was during the Qing dynasty, which is the last Chinese dynasty. The communist China has placed a large psychological premium on controlling everything that the Qing controlled. In the future, this would mean controlling Mongolia too, which uh you know must be scary for them. But it means that would mean controlling Taiwan. Uh, and so they sort of get this nationalistic bragging rights. Um, they also uh basically then they get full sea access for access for all their warships and they get um they really compromise Japan's defense because so so Japan um China views as still views as it its main rival in Asia because they haven't yet wakened to the fact that India is actually their main rival. But they still think of Japan as their main rival, and um, and what Taiwan basically Taiwan's really geographically sort of contiguous with the Japanese archipel- archipelago, and um, and from Taiwan they could just absolutely dominate Japan militarily. Uh, much more easily. It's an unsinkable aircraft carrier. And so you see people write posts with titles like losing Taiwan means losing Japan. And this is why Japan has been much actually more proactive, despite its ostensible pacifism. Japan has been much more aggressive about saying, like, we will fight for Taiwan because Japan knows that Taiwan is sort of the key to its own defense, that if ta- that if China owns Taiwan, Japan is really, really exposed militarily. So that's the other thing that, uh, you know, China gets besides sort of nationalistic bragging rights. I don't think that controlling Taiwan's semiconductor industry is a big piece of the calculus for China, because honestly, Taiwan's just going to blow it up as soon as the soldiers start landing. (laughs) And uh, you can't really. Yeah, like there's not much to control there, like conquering people and like controlling and and, and absorbing their technology is a thing that just has never worked. The Nazis tried it. It didn't work. Um, You can steal oil. You can steal like agricultural land. You can steal land and resources. You can't steal know how. Con- right with soldiers, you can't do it.
1: Yeah, it's even hard to do it once when, when people are consenting to be acquired, let alone uh, when companies are consenting, let alone when they're you know, being, countries are being forced or something. <laughs>
0: exactly right. It's like it's like a, it's like the most hostile of takeovers. Like it's not going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. The um okay, zooming out for a second, what what have we not discussed that you mentioned a couple minutes ago? you That there are a couple things you wanted to bring up.
0: Oh, r- with regards to China. Yeah, or with regards to
1: this conversation in, in, in general, is there anything we, we haven't, uh, got into or did you feel, no, I, uh, I think
0: that's, that's pretty good. I think that Americans, uh, it, it's this weird, uh, public relations thing. It's, just, I, I'm trying to push two narratives at the same time. One narrative is that the idea that China is the superior civilization that can do all the stuff we can't do and, uh, you know, is just like a China in the ascendant, blah, 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 is wrong. This, this triumphal narrative that was especially popular at in 2020 and 2021 is wrong, right? That's not correct. But at the same time, China is by far the biggest and most capable rival that we've ever faced and that we can't face them down without A, getting a big gang of allies and B, reforming our own production process so that we maximize our own manufacturing potential. Um, China, it, it's like, yes, it's, it's China's not necessarily the future, but that yeah. it's still the present. Right. It's still this gigantic 800 pound gorilla in the, the global room. And that, and, and, you know, we've got to recognize that. And that will require us to rise to the challenge, even if China continues to slow down. And even, even though its demographics are punishing, and even if Zehan's right about their resource limitations, thinking that China's about to collapse is disastrous complacency. Damn. This is the biggest, most powerful rival that we've ever faced. And we need to get our act together. What do you think is the legacy
1: gonna be of Belt and Road? And what do you think is the legacy gonna be of uh, Xi Jinping?
0: Well, Belt and Road has been a colossal failure. They, they um, the, the projects economically didn't work out and the host countries all got mad and now they're sort of trapped in debt. And China was like, oh, that money we gave you to build infrastructure. Uh, that was a loan, uh, so now pay us back even though the infrastructure was kind of crappy and didn't really work. So everyone's really mad about Belt and Road failing. And this was a giant diplomatic loss. Uh, and America and Japan uh, are stepping in and saying, "Like, hey, how about we build you some more modest, realistic infrastructure, but uh, give you a better deal?" And so then that's good. That was a that, that's a PR coup on on our part, um, and a giant mistake on Xi Jinping's part. Huge, huge hubris and overconfidence and implementation fail on China's part that should help puncture this myth of Chinese invincibility. Um, in terms of Xi Jinping. It's complicated because he's incredibly, incredibly talented at dominating the Chinese Communist Party. He is an infighter extraordinaire. He is an an organization man. He's like, you know, you know what he's like? He's like the Steve Ballmer <laughs> of, of China. He's incredibly good at making sure that everyone knows that he's the guy in charge and that he's running this whole thing. Right. And then um you know, but then in terms of actually running the thing, he's not so competent. I, I just want to, someone to make an AI deepfake video of Xi Jinping as Steve Ballmer running across a stage, clapping his hands, and going "semiconductors, semiconductors, <laughs> semiconductors," you know, yeah. like like that famous Ballmer video, because um, you know he, he's he's great at taking over this incredibly powerful existing organization at the peak of its power and not amazing at running it. The history books, because he's so good at, at dominating the the mind space of china and the chinese communist party because he's so good at that he may manage to write himself a heroic space in the history books and we may remember him as a hero because or or china may remember him as this hero but in reality he looks like he's not that competent of a leader he looks like he's just actually a screw-up who's just really really good at being in charge but not actually good at doing something with that power i remember
1: before zero covid biology was actually calling him like maybe he's the satya um but uh Oh, Satya Nadella. But, no,
0: you know. he wished the he was a Satya. Yeah, but he's not that guy. Yeah. He's not that guy. He's the baller.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll wrap on this. Um, no, this is, uh, this is great. Um, and uh, until next week. Econ102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.